There is a story back from the 60s of the great boxer Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was known for two things, knocking you out and trash talk. Anybody grew up in the Muhammad Ali era? And um, maybe, got some maybe, I might have. Um, I only know some of you were there. I know because of YouTube. Um, but there's a story in Muhammad Ali. He, he was always known for saying this word, I am, anybody want to finish up? The greatest. And see, the thing was about Muhammad Ali, he, he was the greatest. Because again, he would knock you out, right? Um, there's a story of the greatest Muhammad Ali boarding a, a plane, commercial flight, and he was flying across the country, and they hit some turbulence. And he was standing up, and this flight attendant nicely walked up to Muhammad Ali and said, could you please be seated? We're hitting some turbulence. I need you to put your seatbelt on. And without thinking, Muhammad Ali's response was, Superman don't need no seatbelt because I'm the greatest. Without pausing, the flight attendant looked at him and said, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. Put your seatbelt on. So Muhammad Ali quickly put his seatbelt on. In that moment, he, he was humbled very quickly because his whole idea of who he was was crumbled at the hands of this stewardess on this airplane of reminding him, you're not all that you think that you are. You need to put your seatbelt on because if the plane goes down, you're going down with it. And, and there's this thing in our culture that we love greatness, don't we? It's okay to like greatness. We like greatest hits. I don't know if you've been on iTunes or Spotify, whichever you use, but there's just something about the Phil Collins Greatest Hits album. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And I'm not talking about just like in the air tonight. You got to get to the deep tracks of Easy Lover. Easy Lover. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I feel like we should put a disco ball up with some roller skates right now. Right? And then, then you go on the journey and you hit the journey greatest hits. And it's like, oh my goodness. It, it's, you can go track after track after track. I mean, I had some Teddy Pendergrass on the other day, greatest hits. There are no greatest hits with this generation. They're all not even hits. They're just hit or miss might be what we would call it. But back in the day, we had, we had hits, the greatest. We would call these, these are the greatest because we like greatness. This is why we typically have part one and part two of a movie. Generally, part two is not as great as part one, Right? Like if you watch Free Willy Part 1, amazing. Free Willy Part 2, didn't the whale already escape? Why do we need to bring him back into captivity? Not so great. But there's a thing about greatness, that we're attracted to it, and we like it, and we like power, and we live in a country that is considered one of the most powerful in all of the world. And there's something about power that draws, but power used incorrectly and power in the wrong hands and greatness in the wrong hands becomes a mess. And typically when power becomes a mess and greatness becomes a mess, if you'll look behind it, there will be a, a slew of bodies that has just run over and people that have been hurt. Y'all follow me and tracking with this. So Jesus talks about greatness. We're talking about this upside down kingdom. And last week we talked about how, how we use money, how we use our resources. The first week we identified what these two kingdoms were. That, that whether you believe it or not, there is a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of heaven. And what we have been called to do as followers of Jesus, we are image bearers of the king. We are to live out the values and the teachings of Jesus in this crooked and deprived world to point out that there is a better 
kingdom. And so Jesus is here today having this conversation in Matthew chapter 20 on the kingdom of God and power. And he starts out the story like this. He says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and if you go to Israel with us, you're going to find out why he said as you were going up. Because you may not think about it, but when your legs stop, start hurting, you'll be like, oh, that's what Jesus meant by going up to Jerusalem. And he took 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, in case they didn't know what was going on. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they're all looking at him going, wait, what? I don't... I don't get it, right? I, I get the part, like I can see we're going up to Jerusalem, but this part about them be, him being crucified and flogged and turned over, it wasn't, it wasn't happening for them. As a matter of fact, in this verse, when we say that he's gonna, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over, he's going to be condemned, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to raise again, we call that the gospel. That is the gospel message. And he says that Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, you have to start with the gospel. Before he ever gets to the greatness piece of this, it's the gospel. Because we are nobody without the resurrection of Jesus. Am I right? And when we studied the Beatitudes, every Beatitude was pointing to the same thing, is that without him, you and I are absolutely nothing. He's the author of life, the breathed life, that gives purpose to what we're doing. And so Jesus is saying that this is the gospel. Humility, greatness, power, it all starts... It all starts right here with the gospel because it is the gospel that we find our identity, not what we do and how we work and what we give. The, the gospel is our identity. So the good news has been laid out in less than a verse. The disciples forgot exactly what Jesus just said. Look at what, he, what the conversation continues in verse 20. It says, the mother, the sons of Zebedee. Now this would be James and John, their mom. Now I want you to imagine your mom on the field trip with you and Jesus is taking him on a field trip to Jerusalem and he's given some pretty important teaching and then James and John's mom speaks up on their behalf it's kind of it's, it's an embarrassing kind of moment you can imagine them going mom and so he says the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her son so she brings the boys up and she's kneeling before him and she asked him something and he said to her what do you want there's Jesus talking to the mother of the, the, James and John's mom. What, what do you want? She said, and she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at the left hand in your kingdom. This is a power move on her behalf. So she brings her boys up to Jesus and says, hey, can one of them sit on your right and one of them sit on your left? Okay, why, why would she do this? She, she wants her sons to be in a position of greatness. Like they, They're doing all these things and, and, and Jesus does not condemn her for asking this question. He, he doesn't come at her and go, are you serious right now? Like, you're off the trip. You got to get off the camel and walk back wherever you can. You can no longer go with it. He didn't do that. He, he's going to teach us a lesson right here in, in this passage about what it means to be great. And I want you to notice that when she came to him, she kneels and she asks, if you want to be great, it's your posture and your proximity to Jesus not your position of power. Not your position of power. If you want to be great, you need to find out what your proximity to Jesus is. Because the closer we get to Jesus, 
we'll learn how great we are. We'll learn that without him, we're absolutely nothing. He is our source of power. But it's our posture before him. Do we kneel before Jesus and ask, or do we say things like, no, I got this. I got this. And typically that is a redneck's famous last words. I've got this. Because it typically at the other end of that sentence, what happens? Sometimes not so good things. We, we destroy relationships. We destroy uh, physical things that we have because we oftentimes put so much into ourselves that I've got this. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's about posture and proximity and, and humility of, of asking. Okay? So he says this in, in 1 Peter. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time that he will exalt you and casting all anxieties. Where do those anxieties go, by the way? They go on him because you were never meant to carry those things. And he says that you're casting all anxieties on him because the promise, he cares for you. He's saying, I I care about all these little things. He starts out that you got to humble yourself. Humility is a posture of surrender. It's a posture of, of surrender. So we, we have to understand that when we're humble, we will begin to see ourselves in the light of how God sees us. And oftentimes the way that we see ourselves is not the same as the way that we think God would see us. We judge ourselves very, very harshly. So we have two options. We can be humble or, number two, we can be humbled. Like Pharaoh had an option, didn't he? God got glory out of Pharaoh. He said, I'm going to get glory out of you one way or another. So you can humble yourself and acknowledge that I am the only God, or I will humble you. And Pharaoh chose option two. It did not go well. If you bow in this life and humble yourself in this life, Jesus says, you will be exalted in the next life. John 15, 5 says this. It's a reminder that he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, what's that word? He is the source of life. And Jesus is saying it's proximity and posture that is greatness. And it starts with with our humility. Do, Do we trust God or do we find ourselves often saying, I've got this. I've got this. He says in Matthew 16, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus says, who cares about all the stuff that you have? He says, I didn't die for the stuff. I died died for you. And so what would it matter that if you go and collect all the stuff in this world, have all the riches of this world, and you don't know the king? I don't care about the stuff. I care about you, and I care about the heart. And, and what he wants to do is to pull us in. He wants the proximity, and he wants us to posture ourselves. So then Jesus says to the mom who says, Can my boys sit at your right and your left? Jesus answered her. He says, You do not know what you're asking. Okay? Notice not rebuking the question. He just states the simple fact. I don't think you know what you're asking. He says, So you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink and they didn't understand what he was talking about because they said to him yeah we're able to drink that where's your water bottle where's the wine skin we're good where's this at they didn't understand that the cup 
is a symbol of wrath that was about to be poured out. Now I want you to go back with me when, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, Lord, if, it, if it's possible, if there's another way, take this cup from me. It wasn't a physical cup he was holding. It's a metaphor for the fact that there is a cup of wrath that's going to come down on him because he is going to be crucified for our sins. He's going to be the sacrifice. So if you want to be great, you're going to have to understand this too. You will have to suffer. You know, grace must wound before it heals. There's, there's, going to be, there's going to be some suffering. And what happens is, especially in, in the world of Christianity today, in Western Christianity, we sell this thing that if you're, if you're a Christian, life's going to be wonderful and amazing and you're never going to have problems and you're going to have all the prosperity of the world. That's not the gospel at all. Because if it is, I've messed up somewhere because it hasn't been that way. Anybody else had a perfect life in, in Christianity? Like it sounds great, but it's not. It's not possible. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to give you some encouraging words today. You are going to suffer. I hope you have a good day. But to be a Christian means that, that we're going to follow in the footsteps. We're going to follow in the footsteps of the one who was lied about, who was beaten, who was crucified, who was murdered. That's who we follow. That, that's, the, that's the king that we follow. So when we say that we will follow you, that's what we're following. Wherever it leads, whatever suffering that is before me, I'm in. It's, it's an all-in mentality. It's the, it's the Greek word pasturo, which means whatever. Whatever, however, every piece of me, everything that I have, every breath that I take, I am all in to do whatever you call me to do. So we suffer. I said this earlier, that we don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow Jesus because he is life. He is life. So if we do... If we do life God's way, life will go better. Be faithful to your spouse, it goes well. Handle your money well, life goes well. Um, don't talk back to your parents, life goes really well, right? Because then you learn to turn the other cheek thing that Jesus was talking about. That's a whole other sermon. But we live in a world that has come, become more and more hostile towards Christianity. To say that you're a Christian must mean that you're some right-wing conspiracy theorist to the right. Like, if you, if you claim in all these things, we're going to be hostile. The church can't have a voice. Christians can't have a voice. You can't, you can't speak to these things. You can't say these things. You can't have absolute truths. Christianity has become under attack, whether you realize it or not. This is part of suffering. I'm not going to be held silent because of what the media will allow us to and to not stream. I'm going to preach the gospel wherever I need to preach the gospel. Because that's what I've been called to do, not to cower, not to bend, not to, to shy away from the gospel. Because culture didn't give its life for me. Culture did not create me. I am a creation of Christ. The world has become more hostile towards what we do. The Bible actually says this. It says in, in 1 Peter, he said, Beloved, now you need to just, every time you see that word in the Bible, by the way, you need to just highlight it, circle it to be a reminder that you have been loved, all right? 
Because God loves you. And we can go back to B and we can do all the English, but it really translates back to I am. I am loves you. I am loves you. He says, so do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Share in Christ's sufferings. I grew up and, and have sat underneath a lot of teachings, a lot of Sunday schools, and a lot of whatevers. Nobody ever taught me that verse, that I was to share in Christ's suffering. I like the sharing in eternal life and sharing in the blessings. Those are great things. But nobody ever talked to me about the sharing in the sufferings. And he says, but you're going to rejoice sharing in those sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Did you catch that? If you are insulted and you feel suffering, he says, that's a good sign. Because the spirit of God rests upon you. Now what does that mean if I don't feel that? Well, the spirit of God is not resting on me. Because see, in the game of, of Christianity... If you don't get a bloody nose every once in a while, you might not be playing for the same team. You might be on the other side. And, and so we, we have been called to embrace the suffering, whatever that means. So Jesus says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Because this is our leader, this is our king, this is the one that we follow. So we're, we're going we're gonna to bump up against a world that is against what we say. And if we couldn't be, we're living in this upside-down kingdom because we see perspective and things different. Now, just because a world hates us doesn't mean that that's what we replicate back. Because if we replicate hate back to a world that hates Christianity, then we're playing for the kingdom of darkness. We give back grace and mercy and love, and we're going to get back to that point in just a second. So just hang in there. But look what Paul says in Philippians. He says, that I may know him, and this is, what, this is my prayer, like when I die, I want this on my tombstone because I want this to be the prayer that God answers in my life that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. See, Paul picked up on what Peter had picked up on. And he may share his sufferings becoming like him in death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, here's the thing. All these disciples especially when Peter's writing this, when he's writing in 1 Peter and says that he's sharing in the sufferings. When it's all said and done, every one of the disciples face persecution. They face death of some sort. Whether it's poisoning, throwing off a building, beheaded, that seemed to be the way that people like to do things, just cut people's heads off, I'm not understanding. But there, there was this, this, they didn't understand until they really got the gospel and they were willing to continue to preach. You know when the church grew at its highest and fastest rates were under persecution because the church said I will not bend, I will not bow, I will not break. I, I have been commanded to, to proclaim the gospel. There are numerous stories of Christians being burned at the stake. As the fire around them is burning, they're singing out their praises to God, quoting scriptures to the people in their final breaths, letting the gospel be proclaimed to everybody. You think about Paul they beat Paul. They tried to kill Paul on multiple occasions. One time they, they stoned him and they thought he was dead. And they drug his body, his, his dead body, outside the fence of the city. And 
then he wasn't there the next morning because he just passed out. He wasn't dead. And they tried to get rid of Paul. And they would keep hitting him, and they would come at Paul, and they would come at Paul. And then Paul keeps saying things like, man, I love it because you persecute me, and I draw close to the Christ. If, if I stay alive, I get to proclaim the gospel. If you kill me, I get to see the gospel in front of me. And what do you do with a guy like that? can't stop me, right? And this was Paul's boldness. It was like, I'm, I'm going to live out the message and proclaim the gospel message. First John chapter 3 says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. In Luke chapter 9, he says, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And what? Follow me. Daily. Every day. John 16, he says, I have said these things to you so that you may have peace. Now, when you start talking to me about me sharing in sufferings, where's the peace come in? Right? Hey, I got good news for you today. What? We're going to suffer for Jesus. Do you mean like on a mission trip where it's really hot and we don't have any AC? Like, what are we, what are we talking about? He says, I, I've said these things to you so you can have peace because in this world you're going to have tribulation. You're going to lean into the world and you're going to feel the burns, you're going to feel the pain, you're going to feel the hurt. But in this tribulation that you're going through, if you'll lean into me in my kingdom, there's going to be a peace. And, I, and here's what I love what Paul says, that you'll have peace that will surpass all understanding. I don't have to understand everything that's going on to have the peace of God in my life. I don't. I don't think I have to have it all together. There's a suffering that happens in greatness. A.W. Tozer says it this way, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. He, he means that God loves us enough to take his word and his spirit just like a chisel and chisel out every piece of us that is not like Jesus. Because there's, there's some dark parts of our hearts, is there not? And all God wants to do, and there's pain, because there's some parts of us that we don't want to be broken and we don't want to let go of, but there's some things that Jesus is like, we've got to break that off, we need to chisel it off, and it's going to hurt. If you want to be used greatly, you've got to be wounded deeply. Because I think a lot of it is that we don't learn a whole lot in the blessing, do we? But when we are in the middle of the suffering, we are listening, we are attentive, we are aware of what's going on. The amount of suffering that you are willing and able to endure will determine how effective you'll be in the kingdom of God. Well, how do I know? How do I know if I, if I handle blessing well? You'll know that you handle blessing well when you're in the suffering. And if you find yourself complaining in the suffering, you don't handle blessing well. Because your, your perspective changes in the blessing. Remember all the stuff we had in 2019? All these things that we used to do? Where you go to the grocery store and whatever you wanted was there? Y'all remember those days? We call those the good old days now. That's what that's like. The golden years. And then in 2020, life hit. Everything that we thought we were so dependent on, the blessing that we had just disappeared. Couldn't even find toilet paper. Like what happened? We begin complaining, I can't believe we can't do this, and we pay this for gas, and this isn't on the shelves, and because we didn't even, we didn't appreciate what we had in the blessing to understand where we are now. So a, a good way to, to judge, a good metric is to find out, how do I handle the suffering? Do I find myself complaining in the suffering, or do I find myself becoming more and more dependent on Jesus in the suffering? Because the suffering should be drawing us towards him. And we'll pray prayers like this. Jesus, let us be the hands and the feet of Jesus as we go out and serve these people. You ever prayed that? I hear every time a mission group leaves and a mission trip is happening, 
Man, we just praying that you'll be the hands and feet of Jesus. And in their minds, what being the hands and feet of Jesus are, are handing out Bibles, giving some food. But hear me out. What did they do to the hands and the feet of Jesus? Their nails driven through both of them. There was some suffering. See, they nailed spikes through his hands and his feet. So when we're praying to be the hands and feet of Jesus, what do we mean? Do we just want to hand people things? Are we willing to suffer? To deny ourselves and take up our cross? Are we willing to share in the sufferings of Jesus? All the disciples martyred because of what they had seen and what they had heard. And when you see and hear Jesus, you can't help but to speak of those things. That's your testimony. So Jesus took on suffering so that he could lead us into the kingdom. He says this in Matthew chapter 20. He, he continues this conversation with them. He says, he says to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, and I want you to hear, because he's talking about suffering, and the mom's like, oh, snap, yes, they get to drink your cup. They still didn't know what the cup was, but they were about to witness what the cup was here in a couple of days. He says to him, you, you'll, you'll drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, that's not mine to grant. Now, who's saying this? Jesus, right? Jesus says, you will drink my cup. Yeah, you're going to drink it. Matter of fact, we're going to get you one of those big bubble cups from Walmart. You're going to drink some suffering. We're going to have the silly string straw hats that you can drink out. You're going to drink it. But to sit at my right hand and at my left, uh, that's not mine to grant. This is Jesus, creator, sustainer, holds everything together. Alpha, omega. Did you hear what he said? Whether your son sit at my right and left, that's not mine to give you. That's my father's. That's my father's. You want to be great? You got to learn how to submit to authority. Jesus was like, that's above my pay grade. Can't, I can't give you that. Because that, that belongs to the Father. We live in a culture where the word authority is a bad word. We're scared of it. We don't, we don't like authority. Some people miss, they abuse authority. But in the Bible, authority done in an upside-down kingdom way is the way that God works in this world. He works through authority, healthy authority. He says this in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. He says, do nothing from a selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're supposed to submit to other people and treat them as if they are the most important people in the room. Okay? We are also supposed to treat them as if they're a big deal. Well, hold on, you don't know who's in the room with me. doesn't matter. There was no, I, didn't, I didn't read anything in that that was a caveat to, well, if this happens, though. We are, we are to treat everybody in the same room as if they're a bigger, bigger deal than we are. Well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. By show of hands, how many of you guys have been to a wedding? Okay, let's just say 100%. Okay, you go to a wedding. Has it ever, you ever been like, I hate the fact the bride's getting all the attention in this place. I want a picture. Could y'all move out of the way? I want a picture with the bride, and I want to be in the family picture. And Hold on now. The groom's feeding her cake. I want him to feed me cake. I want cake. If you went to a wedding and you started trying to take the place of the groom or the bride, you don't go to weddings and do that. 
You go to weddings, you're like, this is really nice. Cake tastes great. Oh, man, this is going to make a great photo. Great photo. They don't lose them. It's going to make great photos. We had that happen at our wedding. Um, we, we, we celebrate, and we can treat the bride as if she's the best person in the room. We don't have any problem filling the need that we need to go and take her place. And Like, what? God, everybody else gets to stand up there in the ceremony. I'm going to go stand up there, too. I want the ring bearer to bring me a ring. But it's not our thoughts, is it? Our thought process is always, she's the bride, this is her day, it's about her. But we do it with people all the time. I'm not going to treat them as if they're better than I am, even though they may be the worst person in the world. But that's what we have been commanded to do. He says, don't do anything, anything. Don't do it out of a selfish ambition, don't do it out of conceit, but in humility. The Bible says that we treat people like Christ treats them. And when he was being crucified on the cross, the people that you and I would say didn't deserve the forgiveness were the first ones that he asked for forgiveness to be on. Paul holds Christ up as an example when he says this in Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this, mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He could have had everything, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a, let's say this word out loud, took on the form of a, oof, we can come back to that one. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. You and I are under authority. We are under the authority of our Father. That is the spiritual authority that we're under. And he says this, it continues in Philippians 2. When you get to verse 14, he says, Do all things. That means everything. That's what the Greek means. Everything. Okay? Do it without grumbling. I got to stop right there because I, I have a hard time with that one. Anybody else struggle with that one? I got to wait at the stoplight for three extra seconds. Come on. My life is important. I got to wait a whole year before the next season of Stranger Things comes out. Come on. So you got to do everything without grumbling. You got to do everything without disputing. Here's why. That you may be blameless and innocent because you're an image bearer of who? Of God. We go right back to Genesis. We're, we are the image bearer. So he says you got to do these things because you will be blameless and innocent. And the result of not complaining is this, that you'll be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And among you, you will shine, you will shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be... that. That I may be proud that I did not run in vain but or labor in vain. You, we're going to get to the end of this life, and it's going to be like, you know, I, I did everything his way. I was under his authority. I heard his voice. I was obedient in his things. And I'm, there's going to be a day where a lot of the stuff he's asked me to do, I'm not going to understand. There's going to be some sufferings that I'm not going to understand. But there's going to be a day that I'm going to see him in all of his glory, and it's all just going to make sense. Just by laying my eyes on him, I'm going, oh, okay, that was worth it. That was worth it. But a lot of times we ask God to give us authority. But let me ask this question. Why would we expect God to give us authority if we've never learned to live under authority? I'll say that about pastors. They're pastors in authority that have no business in authority. Because they haven't learned to live under the authority of God. They live in, uh, under the authority of their own kingdoms that they have built. If you remember, 
we were just in a rebellion against God. And we're asking him, put me in charge, put me in charge. Oh, no, 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 no. A lot of times we like to trade in honor and authority for critique and criticism. We like to critique people and like to criticize. And, and we'll trade in honor for people. Jesus continues this conversation in Matthew 24, in, the, in Matthew 20, verse 24, and, he, and we're about to wrap it up here. And he says, when the, when the ten heard it, they're indignant. indignant. They said, you, you sent your mom? Like, for real? Like, you brought your mom and had your mom come and ask this question for you? And they were in, the disciples, they were, they, they were not happy with the two brothers. But Jesus called them and, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? In, in other words, Every time we use the word Gentile, he said, you know the people that don't believe in God like the Lord over them? Like, you know God, you know better. And their, their great ones exercise authority over them, and it shall not be so among you. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't act like you don't know who God is. Don't act like you don't know what authority is. Don't lead like you don't believe in God. And he's, Jesus is nailing him. He's saying, what do you do when you realize that you're the most powerful person in the room? Do you serve people or do you flex your authority to show how awesome you are? He's saying, don't be like the Gentiles. Because you know me and you know God. So you're going to live this life the way that he, he's designed it. And, and he says this, but whoever would be great among you, greatness, you must be your... Oh my goodness. Didn't Jesus just say that's what he came to be? Serving is not a thing that you do. We've messed that up. You, you join a church, the thing we want you to do is to give and to start serving immediately. Serving is not a thing that you do. Servant is who you are. That's what Jesus has called you to be. And if serving is beneath you, then leading is way beyond you. Because we have to be followers. I spent years sitting in conferences in staff meetings, and I've got notebooks after notebooks on how to be a great leader. You know what the problem was with all that mess? Never once taught me how to be a good follower of Jesus. You think I'll ever be a great leader? Not without following Jesus. A lot of us are chasing the wrong things. Instead of learning how to be a follower, we're trying to be leaders. And he goes on to say this in verse 27, whoever will be first among you, they're going to be your slave. They're going to serve you. So in our world, we start teaching this thing called servant leadership. People say, I'm a, I'm a servant leader. There's a problem with that because servant is a noun, not an adjective to describe what kind of leader that you are. Jesus said, I didn't tell you to be a leader. I called you to be a servant because it's out of your servanthood that you will lead. I'd say it this way. If you're here, you're like, I don't know how to serve. I don't know how to help. If you can hold a baby, you can hold a door, you can hold a conversation, you can serve. You're a servant. Find a need and fill that need. In the church, outside the church. Like my job as the pastor here. Somebody's going to get mad about this online. It's fine. I'm ready. Got my response. But my job as the pastor of Together Church is to be the chief servant. Your job as a church member is not to serve me and my vision for what I think God's called us to do. We on the same page? My job is to know, to protect, to lead, to love, and to guide and serve his sheep, which is you. Everybody thinks that God gives churches to pastors. Mm -mm. God gives pastors to churches to serve the people. 
because we have all been called to be servants. Because I'm standing up here and you're sitting down there does not make me more holy than you. As a matter of fact, probably some of you are more holy than me and probably should be up here. But my job has been called to serve you. And we've gotten that backwards in culture. I don't need anybody carrying my bags. I don't need anybody bringing me coffee. I appreciate your heart. I appreciate your servanthood. But let me serve you. And if you do that to me, just know I'm going to try to one-up it. Because I'm going to outserve you as you serve me. But we don't come here to serve my vision. We come here to serve what Jesus has commanded us to do, which is the Great Commission. And we do it together. Are we on the same page? Because he says, even though the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's your last point. Because Jesus says, if you want to be great, humble yourselves like Jesus and serve. Don't worry about your position of power. Just serve. Just serve. Because that's who you are. Who, who, needs, who needs to be served in your, your little sphere of, of influence? Who needs help? Who needs to, who, who in your friendship needs to, they really just need somebody to sit down and talk with them. Maybe they're about to make some really dumb decisions and they need a voice of reason. Maybe there's somebody that needs just to have a cup of coffee and you can just go encourage them and say, listen, I want to encourage you. Who needs a text message? Right, some of you know right now that, there, that you've got, there's a, there's a text message you need to send to encourage somebody. Who, who have you not talked to in a long time that they just, they just need to hear your voice telling them that, hey, I'm praying for you. And like, I actually pray for them when you say that, by the way. Serving. So, so who, who do we need to serve? When Jesus, in a few chapters, is going to model everything that he says, in Matthew 20. Because in Matthew 26, they're going to plot to kill him. And in Matthew 27, they're going to put him before Pilate. And all these actions are going to start to happen. And Jesus is about to go to the cross. And, and what he said in 20 was, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man's going to be, he's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. But he's going to rise again on the third day. They didn't understand that. But, but in seven chapters later, they're going to get it. And they're going to realize, maybe, are we willing to drink that cup? Are we willing to do this? Are we willing to serve? Because they're going to see a culture of Rome that is so against Jesus. They're going to see a people of God, the, 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 the Jews, are going to have such hatred towards the early church that they're going to do everything they can to get rid of Jesus. And everything that he's been teaching them comes to this one pivotal moment in Matthew chapter 27. Stand your ground, proclaim the gospel, and do not respond the way the world that would respond. You respond with grace and with truth and with love, and you point people to Jesus. And before they get to this deliverance of Pilate, they're going to sit around the table. And they're going to have a conversation, and Jesus is going to tell them, My time has come. I'm, I'm about to be handed over and I'm going to be crucified but before we do that I, I want to let you know about a couple of things I, I want you to take shoes off I'm going to wash your feet because I'm going to model what it means to, I'm going to serve you and then I'm going to watch you serve the people 
that are outside of this room. And so Jesus kneels down and he begins washing the feet and modeling all of this to them. And then they come back to the table and he takes this bread and he tells them that, you see this bread? He was very visual. He also wasn't working with the smartest of people. He said, this bread is my body. It's going to be broken for you. And he breaks the bread and he hands the bread to the people. And they take it and they eat. And then he says, this wine, this wine is a symbol of my blood that will be broken and poured out. I hate when people use that word that his blood was spilled. My kids spill stuff. That's an accident. This was intentional. And he says, my blood will be poured out for your sin. And they took this wine glass or chalice, or maybe they had a hard hat with straws. I don't know. But he said, you're going to drink this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And they, they took the cup. And then we know the rest of the story. Judas will take off. He will run. He will sell Jesus out. Jesus will be arrested at the hands of the Romans. He will come before Pilate. He will be turned over to the Jews. They will say, crucify him. And Jesus will go to a cross. And he will spread his arms in humility, in servanthood, in willingness. And he will go to the cross. And he will take the nails for you and for me. And then when all is said and done, Jesus will scream these words. It is finished. Not the crucifixion, but it is finished. In other words, you don't need to go to your high priest anymore and ask him for forgiveness. You don't have to worry about somebody praying on your behalf because God can't hear you. It is finished. The work of Jesus Christ has been satisfied and the relationship has been restored that us can be adopted as sons and daughters of the king and come home. And that we have a place at the banquet table of heaven. And then he breathed his last. And we know the story three days later when everybody counted them out. There was life. He took his breath again and he walked among his people for the next few days before taking off. So today, as we close, what better way to be reminded that we have been called to be servants than taking these communion elements of the bread and of the wine. So we're going to sing a song that symbolizes the crushing of Jesus and the communion elements. And as you're there, just pray. Just ask God. Search your heart. Ask God what it is. Who is it that I need to serve? What is it that I need to do? And go do it. Don't pray about it too long because we'll often use prayer as an excuse. Just go do it. Because he wants to, he, there's a world that needs to know that his body and his blood have been broken and shed for their sins so that they can have life and life more abundant. Jesus, we thank you today. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your body being broken for us. And God, we want to be great. Greatness falls under you. It falls in humility. It falls in our posture and our proximity. It falls and it all falls with you. And I just pray 
that in our strive for greatness, what we will do is instead of focusing on what it is that we want and how we want to be great, I pray that, God, we would do everything in our lives and our breasts to point to you to make you greater in the lives and in the eyes and in the ears of those that are around us. So may you get all glory, praise, and honor for what happens in this place today. And may we be obedient to the calling of the Holy Spirit and whatever you've asked us to do. May we go out and do it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.